Welcome to another episode of Nuevo Healthcare Network, a place for discussing healthcare issues and solutions in New Mexico. For this episode, I spoke with Juliana Anastasov, a health extension officer as part of UNM's Health Extension Regional Offices, or HERO, program. Juliana and I talk about what she does as a health extension officer, the state of health in her region, and the state of health in New Mexico as a whole. She's making a great impact in her community in North Central New Mexico, and it was a pleasure talking to her. Enjoy. Juliana, could you briefly explain what the Health Extension Regional Offices program is and how you came to be involved in it? Sure. So um, Health Extension Regional Offices is an initiative of the UNM Health Sciences Center that uh, really translates the cooperative extension model from the agricultural sector to the health sector. And so kind of in the same way that um, there are partnerships that result in um, uh, an extension agent in every county just about in the United States of America that is placed by the state's land-grant university to work with farmers and ranchers and growers to improve rural life. And in the same way, we've taken that model of being place-based as opposed to doing outreach and embedding resources in communities, particularly rural communities, and embedding resources of the public academic health center in the same way that Cooperative Extension embeds resources of the state's land-grant university, public land-grant communities, to improve rural life, and in our, in our case, uh, health and health systems. Mm-hmm. Part of that definition was place-based. Mm-hmm. How important is it that you are here in Taos County, working here instead of out of an office in Albuquerque or Santa Fe? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so Extension really kind of... Um, kind of turns the idea of university outreach on its on its head. Um, you know, it was kind of very strategic for the UNM Health Sciences Center to approach recruitment by coming out to the communities and finding and searching for folks who um, could fulfill this role, but who were already here, that had boots on the ground, who had relationships, who had been doing health-related health improvement work, Um, out in communities and rather than taking the approach of you know hiring in the center and dispatching out to do research um, there was this idea to permanently embed the resource uh, because we're able to make more of an impact Um, and it's also leverages the resources of those folks that are hired as health extension officers to the university there's no way that a university could go from zero to 60 in a small place in rural New Mexico uh, without knowing the landscape. And so um, being able to leverage community health improvement professionals from a variety of different backgrounds to serve in these roles um, is both beneficial to communities as it is to the university. Thanks. And earlier we were talking a little bit about how COVID has changed your job. Um, One of the questions I wanted to ask was, Mm -hmm. what is a typical day for you Mm -hmm. as a health extension officer? Mm -hmm. And um, to be more expansive, uh, what was a typical day for you pre-COVID and Mm -hmm. what's a typical day for you now? Well, I don't think it's much different than it is for any, anybody else working out in the world, you know, any other rural health worker. I mean, in some ways we've learned to do some things a little smarter. Um, I certainly 
I'm a much more productive with in-stacked Zoom meetings than I am getting in my truck and driving two hours to a meeting that maybe two people show up for because that happens in, in rural work. Um, so on one hand, the reach into community has become shorter and less time um, intensive, also less expensive. We also lose things in two dimensions, you know, um, without just physically being in the same space together. So, you know, um, probably the main difference would just be I was, I did a lot more work just present with others. Um, and I think that if I was working with new relationships, it would have been a whole lot harder. Um, I work as part of a distance team and we kind of have this theory that there's some magic formula of a ratio of time to in-person that then lets you do really strong work by distance together. And we're not really sure exactly what it is. I believe in it. I think it's, you know, maybe a 2080 kind of thing. Um, so I do miss uh, a lot of the in-person interaction and I also appreciate being able to have a much more effective, efficient reach for some of the work that I do. But a lot of it mostly involves um, picking up the phone, <laughs> responding to the request or invitation or opportunity on the other end of the line, um, showing up, talking with folks, listening to where their readiness and priorities are, and listening for a gaps, the gaps that I might be able to fill um, either myself or uh, by connecting to others on my team. We're a very diverse team in terms of our backgrounds and skill sets, or even connecting down to the university. Um, and you know, those conversations can sometimes lead to me um, offering to do a day of work for, with partners and sometimes we're talking about multi-year commitments depending upon you know is it hey do you have some time you can run me down the latest greatest on alcohol policy in any country um and like i had that time and i can do that and i can throw that together and that helps some move something along that gap in research knowledge and background um or um it may be hey there's no clinic in this town and how do we get one? And that's a much longer um, longitudinal process. So um, it's kind of all over the place in terms of what, you know, whether I'm accepting, I have the ability to accept short-term, medium-term, long-term engagements depending upon what's on my dance card and, and whether it's a fit. Um, uh, for how I uh, use my, utilize my time. Um, and then between that and you know what the request is from the community, that pretty much shapes what I end up doing. Okay, so some of the resources you have uh, yourself that you can provide to people or, or part mm -hmm. of your team, and then some yeah. come from the university mm -hmm. in some way or another. Um, Sort of, I and mean, what I mean by resources is, and let, let me just describe the, the easiest way that I describe what we do. And you know, I'm a rural New Mexican. I live in, in, un, an, in an unincorporated traditional farming and ranching village um, on the border between the Carson National Forest and the Picardies Reservation. So 150 households, you know, 30 miles from a grocery store or a pharmacy. So that's kind of my landscape. Let's say, so I, you know, I'm surrounded by pasture land. 
let's say I have some invasive funk in my pasture. And there's, it's choking out my alfalfa, my cows are going skinny. or my, you know. So I pick that thing out. I drive to my county extension office. I show it to the extension agent and I go, what is this? And he goes, well, you know, like that's wild licorice. And if you call Mr. Martinez, he'll rent you out his goats and they'll chomp them out of your pasture. And yeah, or he'll go, oh, snap, I've never seen that. Let me send that picture down to a specialist at the U, you know. And so that's really kind of how we work. I mean, um, I'm basically a technical assistance provider and a consultant that works for free, essentially, as a service of your public academic health center. That's essentially, you know, what it is. So I'm a provider. I'm a provider of training. I'm a provider of technical assistance. I provide consultation. Um, sometimes I'm doing that work uh, as a freelance provider. Sometimes what is the request? Can I can do a better job by pulling somebody else in my team, depending on their content area expertise. I might pull somebody else in from my team. They may have a population expertise that I don't have, like say for example in maternal child health. I mean I've worked in women's health, but you know I also have two midwives on our team who are very, very deep into that work, and so bring, being able to bring them on. So even among the HERO team around the state, we all help each other out in terms of showing up for communities at the request of another HERO. And then finally, sometimes we are knocking on the door of the university to try to get some assistance in that way. But for the most part, the work that we do is our providing service to community. We are always looking for ways to um, integrate the missions of the university. So in that way, being you know place-based and working in a longitudinal way benefits. Because today, I might have a medical student who I'm a community preceptor for. And uh, I may be their field instructor um, for a rural rotation. And that gives me an opportunity to get involved in some work through that student that then may lead to a different opportunity once that student is, um, that student might identify opportunities for more long longitudinal support that I can step in, provide, um, which then may surface like a research opportunity. So it may be that we're actually going back to the university, knocking on the door with an opportunity for the university to do some good work out here. And those opportunities wouldn't surface if we weren't here embedded and saying yes to all kinds of things. And then thinking in our, having a framework in our minds to saying, okay, so this opportunity to assist um, this organization with building some aspect of an organization now creates some opportunity for medical students next summer, which then creates some opportunity for perhaps research or investigation and collaboration with communities. So the same work is the gift that keeps on giving in some ways in terms of not only surfacing needs and gaps, but also opportunities, because communities are not just about deficit. They're also about opportunities. We're, we are engaging in innovation out here. Um, while the gears are slowly turning in Santa Fe and Albuquerque, we're figuring stuff out on the ground and getting stuff done with duct tape and bailing wire. Mm -hmm. So there's also innovation and in, in, invention happening here that can be cross-pollinated across the, streets, the state and also shared with the university because all knowledge does not rest in Albuquerque. I'm so glad you said that. That's a <laughs> That's a great point. How many counties do you currently serve as an extension officer? Uh -huh. 
So, you know, the way it kind of works for me is it's, it's roughly a hundred mile radius from the ground under my feet. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I have an office through a, an agreement with the branch campus uh, at UNM Taos. Um, I live about 30 miles south on the border of Taos and Rio Reba County. Um, and I'm actually a lot closer to the Santa Fe County line than I am to Taos. So like, sort of being placed there, um, I cover northern Santa Fe County. Um, I'll reach all the way down into the city of Santa Fe if, um, de depending on what the request is, but it's not my running and stomping grounds. Um, but northern Santa Fe County is more Rio Reba County, um, Taos County. I reach over to Mora County, although we have a partner hero, a, a colleague who extends for us in San Miguel who also can reach into Mora County. Um, with the office in Taos, also allows me to reach into uh, Western Colfax County. Colfax is a big old county. We have a partner hero in Raton with a whole lot of open space <laughs> in between Angel Fire and Raton. So um, I also will cover the Western part of Colfax County. So that's kind of roughly it, but it's not rigid or fixed. Um, but I kind of aim for those five counties or portions of those five counties. Okay, and, and between all of the heroes, uh, is every county or every area covered by someone? Have you, have you split it up? Yeah, roughly. We, we have um, five health extension offices around the state. There's act, they're actually hubs that we operate. Um, and then around those hubs, we also have partnerships with folks that extend for us that do similar hero type work and we contract for part of their time to re to extend our reach um, and also our the expertise among the team. So I have a colleague, I have a colleague based out of, um, in, in San Juan County, um, based out of Farmington Shiprock, um, have another colleague on the border uh, running a hero office there. Um, we have a cluster of heroes in Albuquerque that are working on very initiatives, some initiatives are campus-based and some of them are more like Bernalillo metro area-based. Um, I'm in the north central part of the state. I have a colleague in the southeast based out of Hobbs, New Mexico. Um, and then we, as I mentioned, we have partner heroes um, in, in Sandoval County, um, in San Miguel County, um, soon to be in Rio Reba County and soon to be also in San Juan County. So we're slowly growing our network um, with the goal of, you know, hopefully having a hero in every county that is kind of within the orbit of a regional hub to really um, try to work on some things regionally in common and have a little bit more of a regional impact um, and also just be able to cross-pollinate a lot more across counties than we can with one of us running around trying to cover too big of a space. And what are some of the unique needs of the communities that you serve in your region? Mm -hmm. So, you know, my region is rural frontier. Um, so all of the social determinants of health, of rurality, and those are things that um, protect and promote health as well as things that mitigate against health. So, you know, uh, kind of in some ways, the good news is the not so good news. You know, we're tough, we're independent, we're pretty good with isolation, inventive, um, uh, pretty, again, again, tenacious in the face of hardship. And that's also kind of the bad news of rural in the sense that we tend to be isolated. Um, we tend to over endure 
um, hardship in many ways. Um, and uh, we tend to be incredibly, um, but on the other side of it is underserved, you know. And so we have across the country and in New Mexico a maldistribution of resources to rural. Um, I think I mentioned earlier I drive 30 miles to a grocery store. I live in a USDA food de severe food desert. Um, I live in a pharmacy desert. I'm 30 miles from a pharmacy. Wow. Um, unless it happens to be on the formulary of my community health center um, that has a drug room. Um, so there's, across the board, there is a lack of, in, there's actually disinvestment in rural. Um, there's maldistribution of resources, whether that's healthcare workforce, um, or how much you pay for the price of gas, or your poor, poor, poor internet service. I haven't had a landline for a week. <laughs> um, so um, so there are those things to do with reality. Um, there's also things to do with poverty, uh, which is probably the greatest risk to human health on the planet. Um, and so, you know, we're, my county, just looking at my county, is over 50% Medicaid eligible, for example. We are um, uh, brown and indigenous county. I don't kind of like clunky term minority majority, <laughs> that would be the demographic term. Um, and that tracks with inequities. Um, so if you add up rural, you add up disinvestments for rural, you add up distance and travel time, lack of infrastructure, um, poverty and uh, communities of color. And those speak to the health disparities um, and the inequities uh, that are, the communities are up against. And uh, we know those things are structural. We know they're systematic, which means it's not up to folks changing behavior to improve health. Uh, it's things like policy and political will um, and voting <laughs> and things like that that are really going to make improvements in our health landscapes um, to hold our elected leaders accountable for where the dollar is going and what are they being used for. Mm -hmm. so. I really appreciate you mentioning that uh, there are also strengths to being from a rural community. Absolutely. It's not just a weakness. Absolutely. And I think that's a perspective that a lot of people don't quite have. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like a, an important part of your job is building relationships with people, be that uh, in clinics, physicians, mm -hmm. providers, mm -hmm. um, or patients, anyone in the community. Mm -hmm. How do you build those relationships, especially if it's in a new area that you, you might not have gone out to yet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and again, that's why our goal is really try to get folks at the county level um, working with our office, um, because then you're not creating new relationships. You're actually, and, and to give you an example, before I came to uh, the University of New Mexico, I was the chief project officer in the second largest primary care system in the state, a safety net system, uh, covering the seven counties, you know, tw running 24 clinics in the seven counties of the north, rural frontier counties in the north central part of the state. So really, uh, you know, for the university, I'm working with the same systems that I worked on in the inside, um, implementing UNM programs in telehealth and um, practice-based research networks and, and um, disseminating innovations, research innovations from the university into the rural safety net. So I just kind of flipped to the other side of the fence. But um, it's having done that work for a long time that then 
is the relationships that the university leverages in identifying who's going to be the next health extension officer. They leverage those relationships that are in place because you've been working for a long time. Um, and really, for rural, it's about showing up and being reliable and doing what you say you're going to do and uh, having people trust you over time that you do do what you, you do, you are going to do what you say you're going to do and you are going to show up and you're not going to engage in shenanigans. And if push comes to shove, you stand with the community because everybody knows where you live. <laughs> and so there's different accountability for us in a way. And all of that is what adds up to a different quality of relationship than if I was a staff person, someone in Albuquerque running out or even anymore these days beaming out. Um, it just, it takes time on the ground and it just takes investing and showing up and people learning that who you are and what you're about and what they can expect from you. What are some of the biggest obstacles uh, to achieving equality of access to healthcare in your region here? Mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, I mean, we are 32 out of 33 New Mexico counties are federally designated health profession shortage areas. So to begin with, if we don't have providers, we don't have access. Um, so that's a very deep <clears throat> gap that we have, and it's one of those ones that's like planting trees. <laughs> you know, you're sitting there, man, it would be nice to have some shade. And five years later, man, it'd be nice to have some shade, right? Unless you tr plant that tree and you sit back for 10 or 20 years and water it, you're not going to have that shade. Um, so it's the same thing with health workforce. This is that, you know, it's a deep, long problem that begins with growing our own health workforce, uh, getting youth interested in health careers. Um, <clears throat> and because we know the data is very clear that when we recruit from rural, those providers return to serve in rural. It's my story, too. I saw patients in clinic for 20 years. Going to ask me tomorrow, I'll go see a patient. I'm going to go see him in the world. So um, we know that. So part of it is work, workforce. Um, part of it is the political problem around uh, whether we arrived at a moment where we believe that health is a human right and whether we have universalized access. Um, there's some work that we've talked about in New Mexico that are on those lines. I mentioned it's changing one sentence in the, <laughs> the Medicare Act to open up access for everyone. So um, that's a big problem. It's not a technical problem. We know how to do it. Um, it's an adaptive problem of, of leadership and politics. Um, so that remains an issue around access, whether, again, it's food <laughs> or healthcare. I have better access to healthcare. I have a fairly qualified health center you know, five minutes from my home that is a safety net clinic where I can get my care, all my family get my care. But food? No. So we have pretty good coverage in the nation uh, with a safety net system of fairly qualified health centers, community health centers, but there are some gaps. There are some communities that have them. And also, then, you know, all the problems that get tied up in that are transportation. How do you get to clinic? That's a barrier. Um, uh, we don't have real transportation systems. You gotta have gas in the truck, you know. Maybe there are some systems that where you can get a ride, safe ride, there's, but the schedules are unusual. I, I talked to, folks up here who catch the casino bus down to Powake and then have someone from Santa Fe pick them up in Powake um, for a medical appointment in Santa Fe because that's where the specialists are. 
So um, transportation is a big barrier to access. Um, universal access to care is a human right in the United States of America, the only industrialized nation where we don't have that. That's a problem. For, and it's an, an exacerbated problem for rural. Um, there are things like, and that the, the, the Affordable Care Act has actually made some progress around in terms of, um, we do a little better around, um, uh, for example, medical interpretation um, of cultural and linguistically appropriate services. Um, those can be barriers. I mean, having a cranky person at the front desk is a barrier. Um, so just having a provide, even having a provider in the clinic with an open appointment is not necessarily the access solution because there are all so many things before the person gets into the room with that provider if they're in there and if there's an appointment book. But even in the safety net, people have long, long waits for some kinds of care. Um, specialist care is not available in the safety net. And, and what I mean by some kinds of care, like particularly dental care, um, hard time to get a behavioral health in the safety net. Um, I've been a member of the American Public Health Association since 1982, and I remember very being a young person and very early on, and at that time there was a dentist who was the president of APHA. And he said, what's up with in America? We only want to take care of people from the neck down. Right, so if you think about insurance, you know, are we covering teeth? Are we covering hearing aids? Are we covering glasses? Are we covering mental health? You know? So really, it's everything from the neck up. We have tremendous gaps compared to even primary care, where we also know there are gaps. We have disinvestments, and where lots of investment in healthcare is downstream in specialty care, esoteric diseases, um, and, and lacking basic primary care services that a larger population needs access to. Um, Primary care docs are paid, I don't know, $120,000 a period. Community cardiologists are going to make a half a million dollars a year. So who, what are you going to choose? Primary care, cardiology, <laughs> right? So, so, and we talked about prevention too. I'm a preventionist. I'm a public health educator. I saw patients in clinic for a long time. I saw patients in subways and on the street and in communities. Um, that's not what we pay for. I mean, to do that work, I got to write that innovative grant to do X, Y, Z, as opposed to having um, having um, health systems, insurers, payers finance the prevention and the front end side of things um, before folks become uh, more ill um, because of neglection of care and prevention measures. So, um, yeah, all of those things are some of the unique challenges here, distance and travel time. It's the real health determinant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're tough, but it's tough. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Why do you think it is that uh, the powers that be are so hesitant to fund preventative care and everything else that we need on the front end, and there is so much funding for these unique diseases and specialty care, things that hopefully people wouldn't even need if they got the care up front that they they deserved earlier on. Do you know? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, who, asking, who's, you're, who's you're getting ask, in the way you're of You're asking an old person <laughs> an old question. Um, it, you know, this is my opinion, but um, for me, ethically and morally, you know, healthcare is incompatible with profit, okay? And so we have a healthcare system that's profit-driven, and you don't, 
make money with well child visits, which is why your family docs aren't making any money and your primary providers aren't making money, but your specialists, you know, so you got disparities even in that way. Um, we're not making profits off of care. We make, the system makes profits off of procedures uh, and uh, higher level tertiary care services, hospital stays, surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a for-profit system. And even if you are in a non-profit health system, we're still an embedded in a larger context of for-profit healthcare. And so that's, for me personally, that's the fundamental problem is, is that those two things are incompatible. And that's why we can't. So it's not, again, it's not a technical problem. It's how we've chose to organize things. It's a political problem. It's an adaptive leadership problem. Um, we know what to do. It's just the way that we've arranged healthcare um, is not very healthy. Well put. Where could someone go if they wanted to learn more about the HERO program? Or uh, if they said, you know, I'm a rural member of a community, I want to get involved, there's something I can contribute. How could they start doing that? Mm -hmm. um, well, they could check us out on the net. You can, Health Extension Toolkit is one word, healthextensiontoolkit.org. Um, and there's a contact us button and there's several of us that you can uh, find there. Um, you can reach out and email me uh, if you want to post that somewhere. Um, it's kind of hard to rattle off the address. <laughs> sure. I have kind of an sure. unwieldy name. I think they can uh, find yeah, it online. Absolutely yeah. find us online. We're happy to talk. Yeah. Um, yeah. And last but not least, what is your favorite part about your job and, and your career uh, so far? Mm -hmm. Well, my, again, my career just hit the 40-year point. Um, so I think the favorite, the, I got two favorite parts of being a health extension officer. The, my most favorite part is being able to say yes. To say yes to um, both requests and opportunities that come up from the community um, as opposed to something that someone has sent me out here to talk people into wanting to be involved in. So um, being community driven and having the freedom to say yes. And COVID was a really great example. I'm not working on any grant restrictions, right? Um, I have my marching orders to show up and do good work. When COVID happened, I was able to very quickly pivot and the calls that were coming in were around, somebody wasn't feeling good and my staff's been sleeping in tents by the river for the last three days. Can you help us out, figure out when we can like come back? Because we were slow, you know, the government was slow to put out guidelines. And if you're, again, it kind of more isolated and don't have access to expertise and systems, you know, you don't know what to do. So being able to go, yeah, I can help you out with that. Yeah, I can help you think through that. Um, yeah, I can get you some guidelines. I can run stuff down. I can find you some supplies. So for me, being able to say yes, even to a physician who says, wow, COVID is a great opportunity for me to... Um, do some work outside of clinical medicine, you know, because I want to make some impacts in systems and, and, and in the policy arena. And so for me, the opportunity is I got a doc here who wants to do some other things, and I want to be able to say yes to helping them explore that and do that because that's going to help me retain them to this county, right? So if it means helping them find that health policy fellowship, if it means saying, please go um, give expert testimony to the school board, I'll prepare your talking points. I'll bring pizza and watch the kids. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so being able to say yes to whatever need or opportunity that 
I know that by saying yes will result in an impact that continues beyond just whatever I show up to do, that things will be in a better place, in a stronger place. Something will exist that didn't exist, whether it's a relationship, anything from a relationship to a clinic <laughs> that didn't live. So that's what I love saying yes. And then the other thing is I love my team. Uh, the, all the other health extension officers that are outposted around the state, my colleagues on the border in Navajo Nation, uh, we just, you know, all, are all in very similar circumstances. We really have a lot of interprofessional respect across the team. Many of us have known each other for decades in other work and uh, curiously have found ourselves doing the same work in health extension. Um, so I would say that is being able to say yes and then also um, the fabulous team of colleagues that I work with around, around the state. Well, that just about wraps up our interview here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I appreciate you.